Bienvenidos, I'm your host Lore, and this is Creepy Chisme. Warning, some stories and information on Creepy Chisme may be triggering and are not suitable for all, especially young children. Please listen with caution. Thank you. Hola, mi gente. Bienvenidos. Thank you for coming back. My, it's been a while since we did a little creepy chisme together. But man, I have been enjoying my summer. June 1st came and everybody was just like, forget about COVID. Let's party. And I swear to God, everybody's having a party. It is wild, exciting to see people getting back to normal, but still be safe, y'all. Still be safe. My episode is coming out a little bit late, and here's why. (laughs) Yes, here I come with all the excuses. So I actually recorded this episode, and while editing, the sound was just awful. It was so bad. Like, you, okay, (laughs) To be fair, my sound on my episodes are never the best. There's always something in the background, but this time it was really bad. So I don't know if my brother's like air conditioner is like really loud. I I probably had it on a wrong setting. I have no idea, but it sounded like we were sitting in the water. That's what it sounded like. And like I was trying my best to fix it, but it just, in the end, I was just like, I can't put this out. I can't. Unfortunately, it's just me. I had my brother on and his girlfriend, but it's just me. But I will incorporate some of the things we talked about, some of the things we said, um, because this was an interesting story. I don't know what you guys think about this, but I have my crystals next to me. I have my rosary. And yeah, this is coming from a girl who's not that religious. It is the Catholic in me that has been instilled into my brain and it helps me feel safer when I talk about topics such as these. A co-worker of mine said one time, she was like, Lorena, you talk about a lot of creepy dark stuff. How do you protect yourself? And I was like, what? (gasps) She's right. And this new Conjuring movie that came out that I have refused to watch Yes, refuse, because the Conjuring movie series scares the crap out of me. Like, can't sleep for days scares the crap out of me, kind of. You know, that's just insane. Yeah, I've only seen those movies once, and I don't watch them again because they creep me out. (laughs) But I have not seen the new one, and the reason I bring it up is because, because I hear that there is, like, a negative energy attached to that movie and a lot of people feel it especially at the end I think they play some recordings or videos and people are saying like just it's a negative vibe something is attached to that movie and when I heard that I was like well not watching it and then it's about brujas and I love brujas but I don't mess with brujas because they will get you they will put a spell on you they will steal your kids your wives whoever they want So don't play with the brujas. But anyway, (laughs) so yeah, so I'm staying away from that movie. But let's talk about something. Let me grab my crystals and my rosary. (laughs) 
Let's talk about possession. Ooh, creepy. So possession has always piqued my interest, but because of my Catholic upbringing, it's always terrified me. Like I said, I hate talking about this and demons and negative anything, but it's what the people want to hear, right? It's what y'all want to hear. So here I am, (laughs) ready to tell it. So um, let's get right into it. So if you're out there and listening, I know this is coming out pretty late. And if you're listening before bed, now is the time to grab your rosario to protect yourself. (laughs) Before we begin, let's say a little chant, okay? Say it with me. We do not accept any negative energy in the stories we are about to hear. That pause was for you to repeat that. <laughs> and if you don't want to repeat it, then damn, you're brave. Let's go. Let's go. So possession has always been interesting because it takes a mental and physical toll on your body. Religion says it's evil and science says it's fake. Or now sometimes they say it's a mental disorder. Now apparently one will automatically assume anyone possessed must have a demon inside of them. But in my research, I discovered that possession can also be caused by a spirit, any spirit. Although there are not many stories documented, I found one that claims to be one of the first documented stories of a spirit possession. So let's take a trip back in time to the 1870s. We have 14-year-old Mary Lorancy Venom. She was born in 1864 near Watseka, Illinois. Now, Watseka, Illinois is south of Chicago, like way south, not like in South Deering, but like south. So you have to go down. So technically on my map, it says it's about 55 miles away from Chicago. So not that far. Now, during this time, Watseka, Illinois, well, I think it might be, I don't know. I've never been down there, so I can't tell you how it looks now. But around this time period, it was very rural very farmy. Everyone lives in those big houses, big families. So yes, we're in the late 1800s. Now Mary Lorancy Venom, one night she's in her room and she goes to her parents and she's like, hey, can't sleep mom and dad. Some people trying to talk to me, people trying to touch me in my room, hearing things. Now her family was very religious and they were very, you know, obviously she's lying, right? She's a kid go back to bed. So pretty much that's what her parents tell her, like, go back to bed. They were Methodists, I believe, yes. Because she didn't want to upset her parents anymore, she just stopped telling them. But Mary would hear this every night in her room. She would see these, now she doesn't just say evil spirits, she says she saw ghosts, angels. I'm not sure how she knew they were angels, but she saw angels. She even saw, like, a past sibling that had passed on in her room. But we know that With good comes evil. And there may have been some evil spirits in there. Now one night, Mary's in her room. And she hears somebody call her by her nickname. Rancy. Creepy, right? (laughs) That would terrify me. If I was a 14-year-old girl, that would scare the shit out of me. But yeah, so she hears somebody. So she's, she's scared. She's terrified. So time passes on. And the poor girl, she just keeps to herself dealing with this every night 
But all of a sudden, Mary starts to experience cataleptic fits. Now, cataleptic fits are like, you know, what we see in movies where people contort or their bodies lock up in positions that don't look very comfortable. But also, part of catalepsy is like, because it's a nervous condition, I think that's why their bodies tense up like that. But they also um, have a decreased sensitivity to pain, which explains a lot in possessions that well, the bad ones that we see where people like physically harm themselves, they can't feel it that much, you know? So yeah, she starts having these crazy little fits and her family is just like, what the hell is happening to this girl? Well, they wouldn't say hell because they were religious, so sorry, forgive me. They would probably say something like, what would they say back in the 1800s? Hot diddly do, what's happening? That sounds like Ned Flanders. <laughs> Well, they're freaking out. They don't know what's happening to her, poor girl. So while having these fits, Mary would describe spirits. She would see the angels again around her. Like I said, she even saw her younger siblings that had passed away. Now, it was also stated that during these episodes, her body would contort almost completely in half. Now, her parents, due to their religion, didn't know what to think of this, like I said, but as more time passes, within like the next year, things just get worse. Because now Mary is having fits at least 12 times a day. She also describes that during these fits, she feels like she loses control of her body and something else takes over. She also explains to her family that some spirits want to harm them and her. Now, remember I said Watseka, Illinois is a rural area and we all know what happens in a little town. Nobody's got anything better to do, right? They don't got cows to milk, chickens to feed, butter to churn. So what do they do? They start chismeando. They start talking and they are talking about the girl and saying she's crazy. Now, the, there was a rumor and the rumor was that her parents were going to send her to an insane asylum. Which we all know, asylums back in that time didn't really resolve or help any. It was more of like a place to hide people suffering from mental issues or disabilities. But Mary's parents loved her, and they knew the risk of sending her to a place like that. So again, the rumors kept flying, and eventually... This couple that lives in the town hear this rumor and they go see the young girl. So the couple's name was Asa and Anne Roth. They were really into like spiritualism and all that stuff, which in a small little religious town, you know, they kind of kept it to themselves. They didn't want anyone to think they were crazy, you know, so they kept it to themselves that they truly believed in the afterlife and spirits and all that stuff. So they go talk to her parents, to Mary's parents, and they're like, please, we heard you're going to send her away. Don't do that. Like, we can help. So what they do is they bring a doctor who was also very into spiritualism, and his name was Dr. E. Winchester Stevens. This doctor goes on later in life to write a book called The Watseka Wonder, where he describes the case. And this is where we know the story from, because that's how it was documented. It was documented in his book. 
So everything I'm telling you came from this one man's perspective of what was going on. So Dr. Stevens walks in to meet the family. He sees Mary sitting hunched over, acting very fragile. Her voice is is like an older woman, not that of a teenage girl. And he realizes that Mary is not Mary at the time. She's an old woman who begins conversing with the doctor. But the doctor does something that nobody has yet to do. He converses back. So he strikes a conversation with this spirit who has overtaken Mary. So of course, he says, who are you? And the spirit answers, Katrina Hogue. She also says that she's 63 and she comes from Germany. But mid-conversation, another spirit comes through and his name is Willie. Now, Willie was not a nice spirit. He says he recently died, but then it got even weirder because now Willie claims that he was pretending to be Katrina, the old lady. So Mary comes back and she tells the doctor that all these bad spirits are trying to take over her body and do bad things. So the doctor gives her some advice. He tells her to try to connect to the nice spirits that surround her and let them come through. So Mary looks around the room right at that moment when the doctor says that. And she says she sees one, a positive, good, bright spirit. So the ropes and the doctor tell her to let the spirit in. So she does. The spirit enters Mary and guess what that spirit's name is? The spirit's name is Mary Rof. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Asa speaks up immediately and he says that that's his daughter who passed about 12 years ago. Oh, let's talk about Mary Rofe. Now, Mary Rofe was born in October of 1846. Her family moved a lot in around six months, so like about six months old, she started having fits, which sounded like seizures. So she might have been um, suffering from epilepsy, which was not very mm, well known, I guess, back then. Now, it kept happening throughout her youth. And her family finally settled down in Watseka, Illinois, which at the time was known as South Middleport, Illinois. They were one of the first to build a home in that area. As she got older, things got worse. And by the age of 10, she was having more than five fits a day. If she wasn't having a fit, though, she was just a normal girl. She played piano. She did all the things kids would do. She got even older and her friends started to get married. And she kind of grew a little depressed, I guess, from watching them move on and live their lives. We all know how that feels. So when she was 15, she began doing what is known as bloodletting. So trigger warning. I'm going to talk about self-harm for about the next three to five minutes, so skip ahead if you don't want to hear that. So bloodletting is pretty much, for example, let me say, she would get like a pain in her head, so she would cut herself to relieve the pain, or she would use leeches. There was even a story I found that said she used, she loved the leeches so much that she treated them like pets and used them quite often. Now, on July 16, 1864, Mary Rofe took a giant knife from her kitchen, walked outside of the home near a big tree, and cut so deep into her arm that she passed out 
and was unconscious for a few hours. When she came to, she went ballistic, full rage crazy. It took five guys to hold her down and they had to cover her face so she wouldn't scratch it. Once she finally calmed down, she slept for a long time. When she woke up, something weird happened. She claimed that she didn't recognize anyone. She lost her senses. She couldn't uh, smell anything. She couldn't hear anything. She couldn't taste anything. But apparently, she could read things without looking at the words. So there was an instance where she grabbed an encyclopedia and turned to the correct page and read the definition of blood. But Mary Rofe was a little obsessed with blood. So maybe she had it memorized, so that could explain that. She could also read books and letters blindfolded, and sometimes she knew what a letter said even before opening the, le- the envelope. So of course, the town, even smaller back then, was chismeando otra vez, and they're talking about little Mary Rolfe. Sometimes people would even come visit her just to try to figure out if she was lying or faking And they would ask her to read letters or ask her to read a book, and she would do it. Now, Mary Rofe's parents chose to put her in an asylum in Peoria, Illinois. She was given a water treatment. So a water treatment, there were two main methods. It was called hydrotherapy. So, okay. So it was either a cold shower to bring down someone who was, like, enraged or mad or crazy or it was warm, like a warm bath to calm nerves, I believe is what a water treatment was. Which, I mean, if you think about it, like I love a warm bath, so I guess it does work, but not healing, right? It doesn't heal someone who actually needs the mental health. Yeah, so they sent her to the asylum. Mary Rofe, at the age of 19, passed away. It doesn't say from what. And it doesn't say where. There is rumor that she passed away in the asylum. And then there's rumor that she passed away in the Rofe home in Witseka, Illinois. Now, the Rofes lived in the same town as Mary Lorancy Venom. But their families didn't know each other well enough that Mary Lorancy Venom would know the story of Mary Rofe. So Mary Rofe has now taken over the body of Mary Lorancy Venom. So she comes through and she's terrified. She doesn't know what's going on. And she's crying and saying that she wants to go home. Because remember, the home she's in, she doesn't recognize. So Asa Rofe arranges, this is kind of weird, but (laughs) he arranges that possessed Mary come to their home. So his wife picks her up. And the weirdest thing happens. When they arrive at the Rofe home, Spirit Mary recognizes her old neighbors. She knew their names. She knew their nicknames. She knew some of their backgrounds. She even knew her little sister's nickname. She remembered her box of letters and other items in the home that the family placed around the house, which I think is kind of weird. So they pretty much were just placing like some of her old stuff around just to see if she would be like, this is mine or like, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I told you it was weird. And Asa even brought up the cut on her arm. Now it is said that she rolled up her sleeve when he did this on the correct arm, but then stated that she said that that wasn't her real arm 
that her real arm is somewhere in the ground. Creepy. (laughs) So it got even weirder, believe it or not. (laughs) While Mary Laurency Venom was possessed by Mary Rolfe, other spirits came through as well. So her body was pretty much a portal for spirits. So this other incident occurs while she's Mary Rolfe, where someone else in the town's family member shows up and they knew everything about this person. And they, I mean, by they, I mean Mary Laurency Venom and the spirits. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to call her (laughs) when she's a spirit. So this spirit was like, I'm so-and-so, remember me, I know these people, this is my family, they live here. Like, she knew it all. She knew it all. And the family was so in, like, shock that they were like, can we take her to Wisconsin to visit family so they can see this person? Now, of course, Mary Laurency Venom's parents were like, oh, hell no. But but they didn't say hell. <laughs> but that's just crazy that she knew so much detail about that person that had passed or the spirit. See, I don't know what to say. I don't know, is she the one saying it or it's the spirit, right? Technically, it's the spirit saying it. But it was so spot on the information about the person that they were like, yo, this is real. This is happening. Let's go see the family in Wisconsin. But they said no, so they didn't go. Now, the spirit of Mary Rofe told her parents that her younger brother was going to get very sick in the future and would need medical attention. And if they didn't give him the medical attention he needed, he was going to die. This did later occur. Their son got very sick, but they did give him medical help and he did survive. Now, Mary Rofe, spirit Mary Rofe, was very affectionate towards Asa and Anna Rofe. Because she said it was the closest her spirit could get to actually hugging them, kissing them, and touching them. Even though she couldn't physically feel it, it was the closest she'd get to doing it. That's really sad. (laughs) That's really sad. So she did it quite often. She was very affectionate. On May 21st, 1878, Mary Laurency Venom came back into her body. So while Mary Rolfe had taken over, Mary Laurency Venom apparently said she was up in heaven being cured of her sickness. So the spirit of Mary Rolfe said goodbye, a very tearful goodbye. And when Mary Laurency Venom came to, she was just like, okay, I want to go home. Because she now didn't feel at home. <laughs> This story is so wild. But yeah, she was just like, all right, let's go. I want to go back home. Now, here's the really strange thing. When Mary Laurency Venom came back from being wherever she claimed she was, she lived a very normal life from that day forward. She even ended up getting married, having babies, 11 babies to be exact. So she was busy. Now, in the book written by the doctor, he claims, I say he claims because we don't have proof, but he claims that during childbirth, Mary Rofe would take over Mary Laurency Venom's body so that she would not have to feel any pain. 
Again, no proof or evidence to support this. It's just something he says in the book. He also goes on to say that Mary Laurency Venom would go visit the Rofe family and let Mary Rofe take over her so she can visit and converse with them. <laughs> now, when I was telling my brother and his girlfriend this story, his girlfriend was pretty much like, so she pretty much has like a spirit best friend, right? That's what it sounds like to me. That's what it sounds like. Now, Mary Laurency Venom moved to Kansas with her husband and family and eventually made their way to L.A. She lived a long life and passed in 1952. So, yeah, that is the story of Mary Laurency Venom. Like I said, it, it's claimed to have been one of the first documented possessions by a spirit, a good spirit, if you want to say Mary Rolfe was good. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, that's a um, very interesting story. I had never heard it um, because the story I actually wanted to, to talk about is the one I'm going to talk about next. And um, yeah, this one, this one about the Watseka Wonder came up and I was just like, wait a second. People can be taken over by spirits just like that, which is kind of scary, but... <laughs> Glad I don't have that ability. But we all know that, well, when we think of possession, right? Immediately our brains go to evil, demons, malevolent creatures, people, things, whatever. And that's where we mostly think of possessions. Uh, we put it with negativity, which most of the times it, it is. So when I first read this story... I immediately thought of multiple personality disorder. But the fact that this girl, a 14-year-old girl, knew all this stuff, personal details about people, she could recount a full life story, that is what makes me go, what? Like, did this really happen? My brother and his girlfriend and I had a very good conversation about multiple personality disorder, how it blows my mind how inside of them they house these different personalities that have different personas, have a different style, have a different language, voices. It's And very different voices sometimes. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's wild. <laughs> but yes, when I heard this story, I definitely thought about that. But again, it's all the info she knew. I don't know. I don't know what to think. <laughs> All right, now hold on tight to those rosaries because here is a scary one. Most of us have seen the movie, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Scary as fuck. I could not sleep for days. For days. For weeks, actually. Um, I saw it once and it was in theaters and that probably was why it scared me so much. The experience of seeing a scary movie in the theaters, which is what I always truly feel they're made for because of the loud sound, the, you know, it's it's just different. It hits different, you know? When you see a scary movie at the theater, it hits way different than when you see it at home. It's more comfy at home, but not as scary. <laughs> but yes, when I saw the movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose, I was terrified I even remember like immediately leaving the theater and going outside like I was scared. <laughs> uh, 
And yeah, I've never watched it again and I never will watch it again. Um, Jennifer Carpenter, who played Emily in the movie, was terrifying and her, ugh, it just, she scared the shit out of me. <laughs> her face, her body, everything, it was terrifying. So if you want to scare yourself, go ahead and watch that. But you got to do it with the lights off, pitch black, then, and very loud. And then tell me if it's scary or not. <laughs> so... That movie, though, is based off a true case, one of the most popular cases of possession, or so they say it was not possession, but I'm talking about the case of a girl named Annalise Michael. So this case is most famous because it went to court, and I'll explain more later about that. So Annalise Michael was born in September of 1952 in Klingenberg, Germany. Her family were strict Catholics. She was a friendly, very likable girl and very intelligent as well. In September of 1968, she was 16 years old and for the first time lost consciousness for a very long period of time. Later that same night, she felt something pushing down on her chest while she laid in bed. I will say that it's happened to me, it's happened to my mom, it's happened to my sister, it's in, it, it was anxiety. So it could have been just anxiety, but it happened the same night she went through the loss of consciousness. Now, they didn't do anything about it, and it didn't happen for quite a while. But a year later, in August of 1969, it happened again. But this time, they take her to the doctor. Dr. Volt, V-O-G-T, Dr. Volt. They also went to see a neurologist, Dr. Luthi. They examined her brain. They did a brain scan and it didn't show anything, didn't show anything. So both doctors concluded that it could be seizures. So over the next few years, she had two more occurrences, one in 1970 and one in 1972. So they prescribed her an anti-convulsion medicine as well as an anti-seizure medicine. They did some more brain scans and again, everything looked normal. So in spring of 1973, things got pretty bad. Annalise would hear knocking sounds in her bedroom and her sisters would also hear the knocking sounds. But it gets even crazier. She started to hear a voice damning her to hell. On one occasion, her mother found her staring at a statue of the Virgin Mary, but her eyes were jet black, completely black. She also said her hands had paws and claws. Um, okay. <laughs> When somebody says paws, I think of cute little kitten paws, you know? So I'm not sure if that was a bad description on the mother's part. Maybe she could have said hairy hands and claws. Like, that's scary. But to say paws and claws, I'm just thinking, like, did she have little kitty hands? So in 1973, around September, Annalise describes to her doctor that she's been seeing demon faces everywhere. She even said that she felt evil inside of her. She literally told the doctor she felt like the devil was inside of her. She told the doctor that she would smell burnt feces around her, and the people around her also would smell it. 
So Annalise's mother let the doctors know what had been happening. And Dr. Luthi was like, fuck that, call a religious official. But later in the trial, the doctor denies he said this. So her mom finds Father Alt in September of 1973. In November of 1973, Annalise goes to see a psychiatrist. She's diagnosed as neurotic, meaning a mild mental illness, but not a radical loss of touch with reality. She was also diagnosed with possible epilepsy. They also said she had epileptic patterns and changed her medicine to something way stronger. In July of 1975, things got way, way worse. She now wouldn't sleep throughout the night. She would eat flies and spiders. She would urinate on herself and even lick her own urine off the floor. Anything religious, pictures, rosaries, crosses, she would destroy them. She also had what some would say was superhuman strength. She once threw her sister, and she did it with such strength that it looked like a rag doll hitting the wall. One time she, w- she was even witnessed squeezing an apple with one hand until it exploded into chunks. So a priest named Father Rodwick who was an exorcism expert, was sure she was possessed, so he got the bishop to approve for an exorcism. Now, Father Renz was actually the one in charge of the actual exorcism. Now, a true exorcism is not one and done. It takes many attempts. So on September 24th, 1975, the first rite was done. The father recorded 42 of these sessions. You can find these recordings online, but I do not recommend listening. But for those of you out there que son locos and want to hear them, just beware. I believe bad energy can be passed through even video and audio. But of course, your girl listened. (laughs) I listened, and yeah, it's really scary. Her voice is scary. It does not sound like a woman. I... I don't know. (laughs) So just beware. But during these sessions, she names evil people and names of demons that are inside. On one occasion, she names a man named Fleischmann. Now, Fleischmann was an an excommunicated priest in the 1500s. He was kicked out of the church for doing evil things. She knew his complete story and told it all. But Father Wren said that Annalise would not have known that information if she was making it up. In May of 1976, Annalise got even worse. She would physically torture her body, banging her head with great force, biting herself, biting others. Her family now had to tie her up so she couldn't hurt herself. But the most dangerous part was she stopped eating. So I guess she was on a diet of spider and flies (laughs) because she was eating those. She claimed that the demons would not let her eat. She reached under 80 pounds and still had superhuman strength. In June of that year, her face looked awful. Battered, broken, cut up. She looked like a skull, a skeleton. She looked like a skeleton and was running a high fever, but she refused to go to the doctor. 
On June 30th, they did another exorcism. And all she said during the ceremony was, Please, absolution. The next day, her family walked in to find her dead. Her refusal of medical attention that she did not continue may have played a huge role in her death. Her family and her, who were devout Catholics, truly believed that these exorcisms would save her. Altogether, Annalise Michael went through 67 exorcisms, and in the end, starvation is what physically caused her body to shut down, or was it? Was she possessed by demons? Had they taken over her? And why her? After her death, her parents, Father Renz, and Father Alt were all accused of negligent homicide. The defense used the recordings and eyewitness testimonies, but the court thought it was a joke. They also argued that Annalise had the right to refuse treatment, which She's over 18. I think she has the right to refuse treatment. There was actually a witness, a woman, who witnessed Annalise beg on her knees for them not to take her to the hospital. Um, it was like near her dying day. It, she just said that she just refused to go to the hospital. During her autopsy, it was found that her brain was completely healthy, but her pupils were very dilated. And there were no ulcers on her body, which often occur in people who die of starvation. Now, the prosecution's argument was that she suffered from epilepsy and psychosis. They blamed the parents and the priest, saying they failed to act to save this girl's life. They, they claimed that Father Alt suffered from mild signs of schizophrenia and tried to blame that. They also said that the medications she was given suppressed the seizures but that the suppression created a delusional psychosis. The exorcisms only made the delusions more real for her. So the trial ends with the prosecution of the two parents and the two priests. They were sentenced to six months in prison. They had to pay the court fees, and the priest had a three-year suspension. The court ruled in the end that Annalise was incapable of making her own decisions and she should have been forced into medical care. So I leave the question to you. Was this dark forces taking over the body of a human or was this a delusion created in the mind of someone with a mental disorder? I don't know how to explain the voices. Um, if you do go listen to those recordings, it's the voices for me. I I can do a lot of voices. Um but to completely change your your tone to be that low or your tone to be that high or whatever or even just the noises that came out of her. I don't know how she could do that. And then the stuff that she knows about. She knew about the one priest who was excommunicated. I how do you know that? From the 1500s, like, did she just study that and then tell the... I mean, she could have, right? She was a smart girl. She she could have. She could have, you know, just looked it up and... But I mean, why go through all that trouble? I don't know. And then the physical pain. I mean, even someone with a mental disorder. And 
I don't know because I've never worked in a mental institution or a hospital that dealt with people like that. But do they continuously harm themselves to the point where they are bleeding or break a bone or rip something off of them? You know, like, is it that bad? Does it get that bad? And then, do I think she should have gone to the hospital? Yes, I do. I think if they're saying she was down to 80 pounds, she looked like complete shit. This this case with Annalise got so bad that I do agree her parents and the priest should not have let it get to the point it got to. If she was already showing signs of dying, that should have been a huge flag to just force her to go to the hospital. Because if it takes 67 exorcisms to clear her body of these demons or whatever it was, and she is not progressively getting better, because to me it sounds like she was just getting worse and worse. I don't understand after after 10 Like, why that priest was like, okay, let's keep doing this. There's no explanation they can give me that would be like, okay, I understand. Now, in the movie, from what I recall, and again, when a movie says based on a true story, I mean, the line is very tiny of how much they follow the story. But in the movie of The Exorcism of Emily Rose, at the end when they're exorcising her, I do think... She was naming like tons and tons and tons of evil spirits and demons. So I don't know if that was the case for this girl. Because I do not understand why you would even go 60 times doing an exorcism on someone who's clearly not showing any progress, any type of progression that she's getting better. So yes, I think they are guilty of neglect not saying that and i'm y'all know me (laughs) i will argue religion forever but not even talking about the religious part like i'm for it if that's what you feel like is going to help you feel better then do those exorcisms but don't let someone get to that point where they're clearly shriveling to nothing and look I'm telling you, you can look online and see how she looked. Like, it was horrendous that they allowed her to get like that. I don't care if she was of age or not. So yeah, that was the two stories I had for you. Do I think exorcisms work? Maybe. it. Def- they definitely help someone feel better. I've seen it. I've, I've not witnessed it, but like I've seen or heard stories of people that say that they've been exercised or have gotten an exorcism and they feel a lot better um so yeah again i believe it's an energy thing i had a discussion with my brother about those churches that you know the ones where like the the pastor's putting his hand on people and they're like convulsing and shaking and like uh and you know the ones we make fun of that they're like release this demon like that like that to me is crazy I don't think anything happens with that, but I will tell you a story (laughs) that might explain that. So the story is, um, it was around this time when I had a cousin who's old, much older now, but I had a cousin who was very sick 
and doctors could not figure out what was wrong with her. They knew it was like a stomach thing, but like nobody could give her answers. Her fam, like our whole family felt lost. Like we didn't know how to help her, what to do for her. And, you know, little by little, they started finding out things and just, she went through a lot. She went through a lot. And my aunt would spend a lot of time praying, praying. And, you know, we all did. We all did. But one day she reached out to my mom and said that there was a pastor or not a pastor, sorry, a priest who like supposedly had these healing powers and would heal the sick. So she asked my mom if she would accompany her and my cousin. And then my mom asked me, and of course, because I love my cousin, I was like, yeah, definitely, I'll go pray. And so we go. And I'm expecting to pull up to like a big church or whatever. You know, Catholic churches are so dramatic. And we pull up like to like the west side of Chicago. (laughs) We pull up to like a bakery. It's like, I think it was a bakery because I remember walking in and it was closed, but like you could just, it was a bakery. I don't know what to say, (laughs) how to describe it to you. And I was just like, what the hell is going on? So in the back of the bakery were tons of people sitting in chairs and praying and everybody was praying and the priest was pretty much giving like a little service. Now... When the service was over, everyone had to come out of that back room and there was only one exit, which was the front of the bakery. You know, I noticed like the line was going slowly and I kind of looked and I'm like, why is it taking so long to get out of this back room? And then I noticed that on the way out, the priest was blessing people and people were falling on the floor. So pretty much like passing out. And I was like, I don't have to do that, right? And then my mom was like, no, you don't have to. But then I noticed, no, every single person was doing it. And so my mom's like, and my aunt was like yelling at me. And she was like, just do it. She was like, it's just a blessing. Why wouldn't you take a blessing? And then I was like, because I don't want to fall on the floor with these people that I don't know. The priest blessed me, not by choice, but he blessed me. And I remember like the whole time I'm thinking, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. I didn't want to fall. And so I remember, and my brother was laughing, but... The priest put his hand not on my forehead. He didn't touch me. He just put it, you know how priests bless, they put their hand over your head. And he said whatever he said. It was in Spanish, so I don't know what the hell he said. I was actually, even if it was in English, I wouldn't have known what he said. Because the whole time I'm just thinking, don't pass out. And when he did it, I just saw white and like I lost my footing a little. But then I like fought it. Like I was like, nope, you're not falling. And I thought to myself, here's me not wanting the blessing and I got you know a little woozy so imagine somebody somebody wanting the blessing how they must feel and I understood why those people were laying on the ground (laughs) but I thought I was weird and it makes me think of those crazy Christians out there blessing each other releasing demons whatever they're doing and I just I don't know like Do they feel something? I can't explain it. All I know is that day I felt something and I saw white. Now my brother's girlfriend said maybe he had like something on the sleeve of his coat that like made people pass out. Which, hey, it could have been. It could have been. I don't know. 
So yeah, those are my two stories I had for you today. They're a little creepy. I hope I didn't scare you too much. And tune in Friday for a Freaky Friday Cheesement, a quick, short, little episode. I'm sorry I was super busy last weekend. I promise I'm going to get my ass in gear and get this shit started for y'all. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at Creepy Cheesement. I try to post pictures for every episode I do to go along with the story I tell. If you have a story, some of you have been reaching out, and I truly appreciate that. I really do. Um, Because I love, you know, I love hearing new stories, new murderers, new, you know, it. I love hearing that. So yes, if you have a story you want to share or want me to share, you can always email me at creepycheesmith for you. That's the number 4YOU at gmail.com. You can also... Find me on Twitter at Creepy Cheesemit. You can also find me on Facebook groups. Woohoo! Go find me. <laughs> Just search Creepy Cheesemit and I'll let you in. Gracias por escuchar y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Cheesemit is created for entertainment purposes only. Thank you for listening and don't forget. Stay creepy.